Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. And I'm Jennifer Waits. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about a massive public media archive with our guest, Karen Cariani, who is the David O. Ives Executive Director of the WGBH Media Library and Archives, which is a, a project that they're doing there at WGBH along with the Library of Congress, a very exciting enormous collection of public media, television and radio. Yeah, and it's all part of this American archive of public broadcasting where it's it's almost hard for me to get my head around the amount of material that is in this archive. It's a huge chunk of American history from the 20th century. Just, uh, yeah, a lot. Yeah, and, and that, the American archive of public broadcasting is a collaboration between WGBH and the Library of Congress. And, and they're working to digitize a ridiculous amount of material, all types of broadcasts from radio to television with a public radio focus. Yeah, one of the things that comes up in today's interview as, as a theme, and it has come up before on Radio Survivor when we've talked about archiving the media that I think is really exciting, especially now in the, uh, you know, third decade of the 21st century it um because we're getting there it 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 appears as though a lot of the energy and um like academic wherewithal the concept of tv and radio being an important part of our history is sort of slowly catching up with that medium's existence right like there's been a lot of lifetimes worth of human history where the understanding what the value of print was was sort of baked into the culture and yet uh tv sort of seemed very disposable radio very disposable and preserving it and archiving it for future historians and active activists and academics um has almost been an afterthought and at the moment all that material now is sort of um it's now or never whether or not it's going to be preserved for future generations to check out and yeah. it's very exciting, very exciting times and also perilous, really. Yeah, and yet we're in danger of losing material. And a lot of material is lost already because, pub, you know, television and radio stations would tape over programs. So in some cases, things are only saved because of viewers or engineers or people who were participants in these stations who who felt like, you know, this was material that people in the future might want to or might need to see or hear. So we've covered this so many times on Radio Survivor, the heroics of of these amateur archivists who yeah. have actually saved a lot of materials. Dumpster diving Radio Survivors, uh, you know, pulling tapes out before the owners of those tapes um, had the opportunity to dispose of them cheaply. Uh yeah, I just got lost again thinking about this uh, this public media archive that we're going to talk about on today's episode because it is so tremendous. We really do take a, a bird's eye view at first uh, for the interview about just um, just the amount of material, and then we do get into some of the fun details about uh, the TV shows and, and radio programs that are available in the archive. But it's really more about um, just how to how to. I mean, what today's interview. We talk about the um, we talk about the strategy behind 
doing the work to preserve it. We also talk a lot about the importance of, uh, in this day and age, making those archives available to the public in on the internet in more ways than uh, than is usually how these kinds of archives can be accessed. Am I am I making that clear enough, Jennifer? Do you know? I'm yeah, trying to explain well, to the listener like how well, locked increasing... away behind doors these used to be. Yeah, no, I mean, and this is increasingly important to archivists is the idea of access that we're not we're not just preserving things as some sort of academic exercise we're not just saving things to save things you know people want the material to be available and and usable so not only to you know i mentioned academic exercise you know not only to scholars who who may be interested in the material but you know to everyday folks uh and and there are challenges, you know, with electronic media and things like copyright and, you know, who yeah. who owns the rights to this. There could be music uh, that is underneath the broadcast that might have another level of rights to it. Yeah, but, so but I'm, I'm thinking it, it's about... It's complicated. I'm thinking about, like, students of all ages, middle schoolers, you know, elementary school students, high school students, and college students. But, like, being able to do research and find this material and watch it for themselves because, um, you know, they, it's, it's, it's all an important part of the, our history. And it's a very exciting idea to think that people, um, can see these things by searching for them, not, you know, they don't have to check them out from a library if they can even access the materials in a library anymore. I mean, a lot of this stuff really has never been, um, made available in physical media that you could find in libraries. Yeah, yeah some of these things were never on stores. Yeah, some of these things were never on videotape or DVD or CD uh, you know, and aren't available on streaming services. I think, you know, sometimes uh, we get the the false idea that we can find anything on YouTube or on whatever streaming services yeah. we might have at our fingertips and and there's still a lot of material that that you know, unless you have some videotape stashed away somewhere of a recording you made over the television, you know there is a lot of material like that that's really hard to find, and and some of the material that the American Archive of Public Broadcasting represents, some of that material you do still have to watch in person, <laughs> like Sesame uh, Street. Yeah, so not everything will be viewable or listenable online, but. You know, I think the hope is that at least through these online tools, you're going to be able to find, you're going to be able to find the material. You're going to be able to search in meaningful ways, and and then if you do have a compelling need to view or listen to something that you can only view on site, at least you have the information that you need in order to find that. Yeah, I think we'll learn from today's interview that that's a, a huge amount of the workload for the people that are working on the American Archive of Public Broadcasting is just um, what they call metadata, right? So being able to find things in a search, being able to know how to look for you know, everything that they have stored, that's a big part of today's interview with Karen Cariani. We're joined on the line by Karen Cariani the David O. Ives Executive Director of the WGBH Media Library and Archives. And Karen is joining us from St. Louis at Washington University from the library there. Uh, welcome, Karen. Thanks for coming on Radio Survivor today. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very excited to talk about 
the archive that you help work on. What What is contained in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting? Well, the American Archive of Public Broadcasting is a collaboration between WGBH and the Library of Congress. And currently we have over 100,000 items that consist of radio programs and radio items and television item programs and, and outtakes and interviews from uh, stations across the country, mostly public radio or public television stations, but also some community radio and community television access uh, television also. Um, anything that is basically nonprofit, uh, that fits into kind of the public media space we are collecting. Um, we have over 100,000 items at the moment. It's, it is a digital archive, so anything that's digitized. The digital files are preserved at the Library of Congress, and WGBH's role is to provide access and outreach via a website that we have at AmericanArchive.org and various outreach activities that we undertake to um, get the word out that this collection exists, to talk to stations about preserving their materials because um, analog magnetic tape is quickly disintegrating and becoming obsolete. So we need to migrate these collections to a digital form quickly. Yeah. And what is the what is the range of uh what is the time period of this archive? How far back into the twentieth century does it go? Well most public television and radio began in the early fifties. We might have a couple of shows that date back into the forties, but I would I would say mostly the early fifties, um, becoming stronger as time goes forward of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so, how and if you wanted to like uh, describe the bulge, like where's the Where's the where's the most amount of material from this archive? Uh, what time period does that come from? Well, I would say there was a real um, increase in the number of public media stations around the early 70s when the Public Broadcasting Act was signed. So stations really started coming on board and creating programming and actually saving programming too, which right. is really quite phenomenal that all these stations kept this material, you know, squirreled away in closets and under desks and in basements. Um, so uh, it's been really great to find bits here and there that are historical of nature that people didn't realize they had until we actually preserved it. So I was curious, I know there's radio and television material. What uh, What's the breakdown, would you say, generally? Is it mostly television or mostly radio material that you have? It's really about half and half. It's really about 50% of, of both. I think the television material had a tendency, um, because videotape was so expensive earlier on, television stations, and because they were nonprofit public stations, they didn't have large funding, they had a tendency to reuse their tapes and tape over things, whereas radio stations didn't tend to do that. Quarter-inch audio tape that they were recording on tended to not, they tended to just keep it. So there's actually um, a pretty good mix of 50-50. Yeah. It is from about 100 stations across the country. So it's 100,000 items from about 100 stations and organizations and independent producers across the country. And we've got material from almost every state. Not quite, but almost. And so what, what would you say is the overall mission of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting? There's all this material here. Why, what, is, what is the goal of having the archive? The goal of the American Archive is to preserve as much of this material as we possibly can and to make as much of it accessible as we possibly can, uh, given rights and legal constraints. So the first, the first effort is to preserve it and, as I mentioned before, right now to preserve uh, TV and radio, the best thing to do is to digitize it. So 
to get move it to a digital file, preserve it at the Library of Congress, and then try to make it as accessible as we can. Um, and the goal is to, we feel is that this material is really important to our cultural heritage. So we're trying to keep the significant historic material as much as we possibly can. Um, I do want to say that a lot of the material right now is from local stations. So it's, um, you know, it's local stations from Wichita, Kansas, or, you know, a local station in Arkansas. So it's a really nice mosaic of uh, local community news and heritage uh, across the country. We're working on the national ones. We haven't quite got as many of the national programs yet. And tell us about, tell us about how, um, I understand that the that the grant that you received to help make this material, all of these archives of public television and public radio from around the country, from it sounds like 50 years of the 20th century, and I'm assuming uh, we didn't get all the way up to the present day, uh, but I, I imagine that there's material from the 21st century in these archives. Um, how are you going to make it more accessible to people? Um, you mentioned uh, copyright. Uh, concerns and licensing concerns, but but how how can how can this material be accessed by the public? Um, so we have a website, and all of the material in the collection is available on location, either at the Library of Congress Research Reading Room or at WGBH on, uh, at our offices. Um, and you can make an appointment and, and come and see anything in the collection you'd like. Mm-hmm. We have, we've got about 50,000 50, items, about 50% of the collection, available through our online reading room, which is on the website, within the U.S. only, unfortunately, because of a geo-block, because of copyright issues. Yeah. Um, so about half the collection is available streaming uh, anywhere in the U.S. Um, and um, in terms of our... Um, one of our biggest issues, though, is that, well, the public media stations aren't libraries and archives, right? And they don't really have a library archive staff. So a lot of the material that they've been giving us doesn't have a lot of information about it or a lot of descriptive data. So we have 100,000 files of which much of it we're not really quite sure what the actual content is. Yeah. It's kind of hard to find. You really have to kind of dig. So we were just awarded a very generous uh, grant from the Mellon Foundation to work with um, computational linguists at Brandeis to try to use some of the new uh, natural language processing tools, uh, machine learning tools, and AI to try to figure out how we can use machines to help us basically catalog the collection or at least pull out some key uh, terms and key um, uh, indexing terms that we could use to find things better. Wow, that's very exciting. Is that... Is that up and running at this moment, or is it um, is it in the works? It's in the works. We're just starting. We've sort of identified some low-hanging fruits that they can work on that would be really helpful for us. Uh, one example is to OCR uh, text that's on the screen. So, for example, a lot of the older programs begin with a slate. Um, and the slate, you know, like a clapboard slate that you see in films, uh, so video does kind of the same thing, but it's not a clapboard, um, although sometimes it is. But anyway, it usually has the definitive title of the program, the date that it's being recorded or aired, the producer and the director. And that's all really good information for us if we don't know anything about the item. Um, so they are working on OCRing um, that text so that we can then use that as uh, finding metadata or finding yeah. data information. And OCR, um, I'm other guessing. Other things are like lower... 
I'm sorry. O OCR, oh. I'm guessing, means oh, uh, reading it, reading it and making making it into computer language. Yes, or making it into text That's that a, yeah. can be then searched. <laughs> yes. Language that yes. both humans and computers share in, in this day and age. Exactly. Exactly. And other things are like um, the lower thirds, identifying a speaker. You know, often when you watch a documentary, it has, a, you know, who the speaker is. It has their name and their their position. So um, being able to OCR that and put it into our metadata will help us with speaker identification, right. which and, is great. And all this is because um, the, the volume I, of the volume of material is so huge that you don't have the resources to have a human watch every minute of all of the exactly. material that you have. Um, how many minutes of material exactly. do, do you know that answer? Is that a very, that's a very silly question to ask, childish question. <laughs> well, we have a hundred, we know we have a hundred thousand items and I, I would imagine that most programming is either 20 minutes, 30 minutes or an hour. So you know, you can do the math. <laughs> I, I will not do the math live <laughs> on the radio, but uh, I appreciate I appreciate we, we the do audience's have... opportunity to do the math. <laughs> I mean, one of the better collections that actually is pretty well defined and cataloged is the NewsHour. We recently uploaded the we're, – we're still working on the final bits of it, but we have most of the NewsHour collection online, streaming, available, dating back to the early 70s. Um, it's a, um, more than 14,000 episodes of the news hour and it's in pretty, it, that's pretty findable because they have transcripts for most of that material. So it, it's, um, pretty easy to search through materials for that. Um, but it's a really amazing collection, you know, it's news every day, um, for 30 years. Right. That, for, <laughs> plus, for, for listeners, for listeners that aren't news junkies or might be younger than, uh, than me, it's that's, that would be the primary, uh, news program for, for public television. So it'd be covering the national news from a, uh, from that public television platform. Uh, I imagine there would be material from, uh, impeachment in the seventies. That's, that's the yes, first thing that came fact, to my mind today. Yes. Well, I don't know if you know this, but McNeil Lara actually, McNeil Lara at News Hour actually started out of the Watergate hearings. Yeah. Um, they actually, they started airing full length um, impeachment hearings during the Nixon era, and then they turned that into a, a daily news program afterwards. But we also do have gavel to gavel coverage of the Watergate hearings. That's in the collection also. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exciting news. Well, we're talking to Karen Cariani, the David O. Ives Executive Director of the WGBH Media Library and Archives. My name is Eric Klein. This is Radio Survivor. And also on the line with me is Jennifer Waits from San Francisco. So Karen, I'm curious, with all this material, how do you decide where to start as far as new projects like this with the metadata work? How do you how do you place the priorities on on where to tackle you know what to digitize and and what to add me metadata to? So in terms of what to digitize, um, you know, there's so few funding dollars out there in the fun in the donation and fundraising and grant project space for digitizing these collections, which is really really too bad. Um, so in terms of what we will take in and digitize, you know, we'll work with if we have to, the Library of Congress needs to decide whether they will take the ultimate collection as part of their overall collection. So we, we do check to see, is it significantly historical? Is it, is it unique? Is it at risk? Um, is it something we don't already have? Does it cover a region of the country that we don't already have representation for? 
Um, so those are all some of the questions that we talk about before we will take a collection in. But quite honestly, um, most most of the stations who are willing to go through the effort of raising funding and getting their material digitized and into a preservation format, it's valuable material. Um, I'm not sure we've actually turned anybody away yet. I think we might have turned away a collection of promos, thinking that the promos, you know, actually we're still debating that one, quite honestly. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so, you know, right now there's, it's not like we're getting a flood of material in that we are making difficult choices. Um, so that's good news. Um, so for the metadata, um, I mean, what we are doing is we are running every everything that we have through speech-to-text tools to create some kind of a transcript, Not thinking that some kind of a transcript will give us some keywords that will give us some indication of what the content is, and we'll make it somewhat findable. Now, we all know that the speech-to-text tools these days are not great, so there are lots of errors. So we have um, a crowdsourcing platform where we're asking the public to help us correct those transcripts, and that's called Fix-It Plus. And it's based on a tool that the New York Public Library built, actually. It's a transcript editing tool. Um, so you can go to our website, and anybody can help us fix those transcripts. Um, and that's, you know, that's coming along, and that's certainly helping. Uh, the speech-to-text tools, um, th the biggest issue that we're finding with those is that uh, we have such a wide variety of content from such a wide geographic uh, uh, regions in the country that, you know, the South speaks differently than the North, which speaks differently than the Midwest. So there are all these accents and speech patterns that uh, the speech-to-text tools, you really have to train them towards those different differences in order to get really good transcripts. And that's part of what we hope to do with Brandeis is to really train the tool to, to clean up that and to improve the tool. Um, but in the meantime, we're looking for the public to help us fix the transcripts. That's really fun. It reminds me of like, uh, like editing Wikipedia, right? Which is something that, that anybody, yeah. um, anybody in America could do as a, as a, as a volunteer hobby to, to sort of improve improve information overall so so the same the same spirit could be used to improve the these machine transcripts of public television and 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 community radio from around the country from from across the the whole history it sounds like of of the medium yes the people that have done it and have been um we've been having these transcriptathons where we get a bunch of people together in a room and they all work on different um items to help fix the transcripts and it's pretty funny because they're all on their headphones themselves not really listening to each other but listening to their own stories but the feedback that we've gotten is they've gotten so engaged with the content because you have to listen right you have to listen carefully and follow the transcript and they've learned so much just in doing that yeah. that they've you know learned things they never knew before that's very so exciting. It's, it's and great. we'll have links to uh, how listeners, if they want to get involved, uh, we'll, we'll have links to that on today's show notes for the episode of Radio Survivor at our website, radiosurvivor.com. Uh, I'm very excited, Karen, because the the thing that you mentioned is one of the challenges of having a, a computer do the transcript to me is such a such an exciting strength of the collection that you were referring to that, that there's different accents, that not everyone speaks with the same... Uh, uh, you know, the same accent that we're very used to coming out of our news programming. I mean, that it's from all around the country. I think that's a good opportunity to ask you about. Um, tell us a little about some of the more specific, you know, we know about News Hour, which is a big show mm -hmm. on public television. What are some of the smaller shows that are in the collection that 
that you're excited to to have preserved? So we have also been um, we've been collecting interviews, raw interviews from various series like Eyes on the Prize, and some American Experience documentaries like Stonewall Up- Uprising, the the murder of Emmett Till, uh, Freedom Riders. Um, we have a couple. Civil War interviews. We're hoping to get more of his collection at some point in time. Um, so, uh, and these and you said you just said you just referred to the Ken Burns Civil War documentary. These are the these are these are the interviews before they were edited for the documentaries. These are the unedited interviews, which have correct. We have a real historical value uh, beyond the beyond their usefulness in the as a show. These are these are historical documents now that that other writers and archivists and uh, academics can study. That's really exciting. Yes. And you know, as I said, there's some other ones too. There's some American experiences like the murder of Emmett Till. Um, we have uh, interviews from American masters, um, Africans in America. Um, some other programming that we even have is there's a series from WNED in the 60s and 70s called, called Women Series, which are, is really great. It's all about women's issues from the 70s. Um, we have a collection of early material pre-PBS um, network called the National Educational Television. It was basically the distribution means for early public media before there was a national network called PBS. Um, we have uh, Vision Maker Media documentaries, which is Native American independent films. Um, we have a bunch of interviews from uh, Novas of To the Moon, uh, so interviews with astronauts and people part of the NASA program. Uh, we have recently been ingesting Sesame Street, although um, to, in order to see any of the Sesame Street collection, you need to come on site. Um, those are not, will not, probably not be streaming for some time now. Yeah, um, you have to make a pilgrimage, a series, it sounds like. Yes, you have to make a pilgrimage for that. Uh, the Nashville Station, um, the Nashville Station gave us a series called A Word on Words, which is a, um, uh, interviews with various journal- journalists and writers, um, which is pretty interesting. Uh, en Francais is out of Louisiana. It's a French series. Um, we have, we have links to Firing Line, which is actually, um, streaming out of Stanford University's, um, uh, Center of the Hoover Institute, but we have links to them in all their metadata records. Um, so that's just, you know, that's, some Yeah, it's a quite a highlight. It's, it's quite a highlight list. Um, I, I'm, <laughs> I want to let Jennifer ask the next question, but I, I also want to follow up with, uh, uh, I want to know what the weirder ones are. Now we know what the, like, um, what, yeah. what, what, what some of the most important historical mainstream content is, but what's, what's like something in the collection that is surprising because it's uh because it's unique what are some of the weird shows that that you have in the collection um fishing yeah. <laughs> fishing from small you know you know public media is always really good about how to yeah so we have a couple of how to fishing shows um cooking shows from around the country right um, I, I, uh, I believe at one point there was, um, a show from, I think it might've been Iowa, uh, dousing, which is, you know, finding graves using a dousing stick. Wow. Graves, <laughs> not I guess water. it was a very popular show Neat. in the community. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Um, what are some other ones? And like, I, um, so I have just a couple, I, I, I want to get on my like Gen X soapbox and let people know that, um, 
you know, they might be aware of the Bob Ross programming where he paints and this, this happened, you know, you know, he's famous for these, it, it's been streamed now successfully and it's been reintroduced to a whole generation, uh, this one individual painter, but he was just one of, I don't know, I'm going to say hundreds of painters who had shows. Um, I'm not aware of the exact number, but, but this was like a genre of public television. It's not just something that Bob Ross did. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's not what he originated. Yeah, and the idea of there being uh, cooking shows that aren't celebrity cooking shows, but very local uh, public television cooking shows is, uh, yeah, I, that's the kind of stuff that I would love to see. You know, stuff stuff from the '80s that um, that has not yet made it into into meme culture. It's next year's meme <laughs> culture is coming. I mean, along those lines, I'm curious. You know, college radio and public radio and community radio. There's some intersections there. So I'm curious if there's material from college radio stations or community radio stations in the collection. Um, definitely community radio. We have KBU, which is out of Portland, Oregon, um, and I think there were a couple, of, yeah, a couple of other um, stations that we also have in there, but I don't know off the top of my head. But college radio, actually, there are a number of college radio stations that are our, um, public radio stations. They just, but they're on, like Indiana University has a public radio station that's on their campus, for example. Um, I believe we might have some stuff from UMass Amherst, but I'm not 100% sure. But we have been, um, as long as it, you know, as long as it's not just spinning music, because we feel like spinning music isn't necessarily unique content, but if it's, you know, interviews with people in the community or um, something that's the radio station has produced that local uh, content. Uh, we will take that, but we're trying to stay away from um, just spinning yeah. music. Jennifer, do you want to, yeah, do you want to fight for spinning music though for a minute or should I, shall I, uh, you know, not, not to <laughs> no, get on your case. Well, I, I mean, you guys are working hard and I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to give you more work. I, I actually was a DJ at a college radio station once upon a time. Yeah. So I totally oh, get more. And I, <laughs> I, I loved I loved spinning records. <laughs> where anyway. so where did you do college radio? I was working at Brandeis and I was uh, a DJ on the station after hours, after my job. So yeah, um, very cool. And we we ended up we ended up doing you know live studio shows. So we would bring in live local Boston bands to do shoot studio shows. And so that's the kind of thing that we would probably keep because that's you know live. It's unique. Um, I have no idea if we still have those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Preserving that stuff is difficult. There's also an argument to be made. I want to. I'm going to briefly make the argument that um, for spinning music uh, in an era where where these community radio stations or college radio stations might have been the only stations or very unique stations in a community sharing a, a new music that wasn't available in the same way. Uh, I'm thinking primarily of hip hop in the '80s and early '90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've had we've discussed uh, with Ryan McMichael, who has a very um, uh, bootstrappy, grassroots, uh, unofficial uh, uh -huh. hip hop radio archive. So, be I want to put in a plug for preserving uh, those those shows, even if they are just playing music, just because the when when you know the DJ breaks are unique, but also the the selection that they choose and how they present it to the listeners. Uh, for its time and place is still uh, fascinating. Although I suppose you could you could just read the the list instead of having to listen to it. But um, that's just my that's just my good, good 
two cents. Good point. Good worth, point. Point worth taken. I will yeah. bring that back to the team. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not uh, intend to give you more work. It sounds like you guys have your work cut out for you. Exactly. With this enormous archive. Well, yeah. And we understand that every archive has to have its priorities. Um, so I'm, I know that, that you are continuing to do research and outreach or continuing to do outreach to other other stations um so what are what types of collections do you feel like you're lacking that you're actively trying to find um so the national stations and the big national markets um we have not yet um been um we've been trying to tackle that one and part of the problem is rights issues um, because they were aired nationally, the rights are a bit more complicated. It's one one issue. And um, the other issue is that those stations uh, seem to feel like they have the resources to kind of do it themselves. Um, and they feel as though there might be some monetary value in it. So they're a little bit hesitant at the moment to participate, but we're, we're, we're making inroads, um, especially as the material disintegrates. I mean, what better place to have it preserved than at the Library of Congress? Yeah. I wonder, so, right. um, you know, I, I'd wonder if it's, if it's okay to ask you a question. I first learned about these issues when uh, I did a news story, um, oh, so many years ago now, about 15 years ago, about Eyes on the Prize, this uh, PBS documentary that, that um, was a multi- our series covering the civil rights movement and when 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 i learned about this story in the 2005 2004 uh, uh time period the the footage from the documentary which did air on pbs in i believe the 80s or 90s uh the footage then was um the licenses were no longer available and even screening the documentary was an act of civil disobedience. That's how the story was presented to me. And uh, I know that since that time, uh, they've been able to renegotiate these licenses. But I think it's a really, um, it's not something that most people understand about this material. And you just referenced it, that some some organizations are uh, hoping maybe to, to, not to profit off of it, like to, you know, to, to line their own pockets, but to get paid for, for preserving it so that they can continue to preserve it. Um, mm -hmm. The value of the footage is such a strange, yep. it's, it has so much historical value and like social value, but it also does have a marketplace value. And then making it available to the public uh, comes with its own um, legal issues that I think are, that are uh, complicated. Yes. So, yes. So the, the final programs, if you want to take Eyes on the Prize as the example, the final programs has all kinds of issues with third-party materials that they use. All that historical, maybe not all of it, but a number of the historical footage that's in there was probably from another archive that they licensed the material from. And they probably got limited licenses, you know, for only so many years, for only so many markets, so on and so forth. In addition to the talent unions that went into it, the writer was probably Writers Guild of the voiceover narrator was probably an actor's guild. So there are all of those union agreements also that kind of roll into the issues around putting the program out there. So that's one reason why we've been focusing on the low-hanging fruit, which is the raw interviews. The raw interviews, generally speaking, people signed a release, and they're more than happy to have that interview be made available. And although the station may, I mean, we, we actually do have the Eyes on the Prize interviews up there. We are working with Washington University, who now owns those interviews, to put more up there. 
But um, in general, the reason why the interviews seem to be a little less precious is because, yes, they are of historic value. They're unedited. It's the story that the person basically tells raw. Um, but what we're trying to encourage the stations to say is that, look, nobody knows you have this until you tell them you have it. And they can actually see what it is and see how valuable it is. So put, let us put it online. Let us stream it. You know, there's no download. We're, we're, we're trying to protect the downloadability as much as we possibly can. And if somebody actually wants to use it in another piece that might be commercially viable, they can pay you a license fee for that. And they're going to need to pay you a license fee for that because otherwise they're stealing it. So, you know, that argument it, it has gotten, it has woken up a couple of people. I know the news hour has basically said, since they've put their collection up on the American Archive, they've gotten so many more licensing requests than they ever thought that they could, which has been great for them. So it's increased the awareness that this collection exists and people can search it. Yeah. And, so, then, um, yeah. and then if there aren't documentary filmmakers who want to use it in their project, but just academics or members of the public for research purposes, all of that's now available for free. Available. It, like a library yes. on the internet. Uh, and then we're Correct. talking, of course, about your archive, uh, which if people want to find it and search this library, it's the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. And to follow up on that, I'm curious how re how researchers and scholars have been using the archive, if you have some specific examples of that. Um, we do. Um, uh, we've had a number of scholars actually use it in um, papers that they've written, scholarly works. We have a couple of exhibits that are actually online that scholars have put together around a subject matter using content from the collection. Uh, I think we've been referenced in a couple of books also, which has been kind of, which has been very exciting. Um, but that we have a scholarly advisory committee, so scholars are working with us on what we can do to make the collection even more useful, friendly for them, which has been um, helpful. Also, we we do we're very conscious of the fact that we have work we need to do to make it easier to use. It's amazing to be at this place in in time, though, where as a scholar you can actually access a collection like this. It's pretty incredible. Yes. Yes. And the other the other kind of cool, more advanced thing would be we're, we're looking for people to use it as a data set. So we do have an API. You have to sign the terms of use, but we have an API that people can use to access, actually access the collection just as a data set. So if somebody wanted to say research trends in how climate change has been reported over the last 30 years, um, you know, you could take the news hour as a data set and see okay, where did the terminology change from global warming to climate change? Or how many times did they actually talk about the weather over the last 30 years? And um, So you, we're really interested in people kind of seeing what we need to, um, scholars in particular, using the collection as a data set. So since we span, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, um, it would be interesting for people to be able to pull um material out of the collection and use it as a data set in terms of you know, how terminology changed, uh, how, how talking about weather changed, how, uh, you know, coverage of uh, poverty changed over the years. What about uh, uh, black women voices? Can we, can we search that for a data set? Well, you can try. We, um, you know, we need to implement data to really make it a better data set. But we, we're interested in people working with us. What do we need to do to make it better? Yeah. Uh, also, tell me how many painters who are not Bob Ross had TV shows around the United <laughs> States teaching painting. 
Uh, that can be the oh, end of you your list. That could be the end after you find out how many okay. black women voices were on public television in the 80s. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, I was also thinking the proliferation of local cooking shows. <laughs> like, can you can you map that out from the collection? As yeah. Well, did did Julia Child lead shows? to uh, to an outbreak of more cooking, more women teaching cooking? Jennifer, what's your first research question now that you know this this is an opportunity for someone like you to dig in? What are you looking for? Oh, well, I mean, on the top of my head, I was just thinking about some of the work that Brian DeShazer has done with LGBTQ archives. And and I'd be curious in the public broadcasting archives, um, uh, you know, that would be, I don't know what the research question is, but um, if you could sort of map those voices and those conversations and how that's changed over time. We actually had a, um, we actually had a special collection um, LGBT and collection, LGBT plus and collection, uh, where we actually, we kind of did a, we did a data search um, on some key terms and then pulled up the collection and then realized that our metadata wasn't actually as good as we had hoped it to be. So we had to kind of prune out some things that were completely unrelated, but there is a collection in there of material from across the country. Yeah, especially, and especially in the sixties or seventies and even the eighties, that would be a very uh, unique mm-hmm. time to hear gay voices talking about their own, their community's issues on public television uh, in these time periods. That'd be, be, that'd be a, a good place to dig. I want to watch what's happening, Mr. Silver. That's all I want to do. You talked about, I was curious if there's any limitation as far as access to the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. It sounds like you cannot... Um, access some of the materials from outside of the United States. Is that is that one of the only rules? Um, yes. So all of the metadata is available anywhere. So anybody can search to see what we have and what we don't have, or what we have a record for at least and what we don't have. Um, the streaming video, only half of the collection is available streaming within the United States. And that's because copyright laws outside of the United States are different and we haven't quite worked through what, whether or not we can legally stream outside the United States at the moment. Um, the entire collection is available on site at WGBH or at the Library of Congress. So um, those are really the only, you have to sign our terms of agreement. So you have to sign the agreement basically saying, I am a researcher scholar. I'm only looking at this for research purpose. Anything commercial with it. I'm not planning on doing, you know, I'm not going to try to download it. I'm really just uh, watching it for research. And, and can it, and if you're just, if let's say you're not a scholar, is it okay to come in to WGBH yes. to watch material? Okay. Yes. And do you have a lot of people coming in to view? Um, um, we mostly don't. Mostly the people that actually come in are scholars, but I do have a story to tell that. Um, so I don't know if you know, um, Jean Shepard, you know, Gene Shepard, he was the director of the feature film, A Christmas Story. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, anyway, anyway, he did a series called America, Gene Shepard's America. And there was an elderly couple who, who were a total fan of Gene Shepard. And they were on it from Bermuda to Boston. And they spent their one day um, that they were um, anchored in Boston. They came to GBH and spent the entire day sitting on a couch watching Gene Shepard shows. Aw. <laughs> Well, because of this show, you might have one or two more media tourists. If you go, listeners, tell them Radio Survivor sent you. Karen, tell us about public access television. I'm wondering if that sort of um, 
user-generated content, as it were, of its time period. You know, I'm thinking primarily of the 80s and 90s. Do you have any of that in your archive? We, I don't think we've actually taken any public access television yet. I think we had a couple proposals out um, trying to get some grant money to get that material digitized, but I'm not, as far as I can remember at the moment, those didn't come to fruition. Um, do you know Riverside Church Radio in Upper West Side, in New York? Um, they're yeah. not technically a public radio station. They're kind of more of a community public station, but we did get a grant to digitize their materials. Um, and Riverside Church was um, in the 60s kind of the forefront of uh, progressive politics and social awareness. And they had a number of people who would come in and lecture at the church. And then they would broadcast the talk. And like Martin Luther King was there a couple of times. And um, James Foreman was there. So um, that material is currently being preserved and ingested. Um, but I, you know, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of community access television. Well, uh, WGBH did do a project on local television news in Boston, and Cambridge Community Television was part of that. So Cambridge Community Television's archive collection is on our Boston local TV news website. Um, and we're thinking about, um, we were trying to help Boston Neighborhood Network also get their collection in order. They just recently have expressed interest in preserving their material. So maybe piecemeal step by step we can help those communities out too yeah it's it's great i um i had read that you know part of the work is to be helping other organizations to figure out digitization plans and and grant you know how to find grants how how much of that is your work in in kind of partnering with other groups to help them get started um, yes, that's actually a big part. Um, I mean, we do believe that, um, you, you know, you, you have to teach a person to fish in order to feed themselves in some ways. So we're doing a number of training. We have a bunch of webinars out about digital preservation, about digitizing good best practices and archiving materials. Um, we've been working with a number of stations across the country to develop proposals. Um, giving them kind of the technical preservation language that they need, helping them with workflows and project management. Um, uh, we have, we did have a couple grants which um, put internships and fellows at the stations to help digitize. So these would be like graduate students of library science to train the next generation of archivists in order to get them familiar with audiovisual material. It's something that's not really taught when they go to library school. Um, so we're, we're also outreaching in that regard to try to, um, get more people out there interested in audiovisual archiving and getting them into the hands and places where that work is most needed. Yeah. And how, how would a station get an intern to help with these types of projects? Um, so we, we, um, Alabama, we're currently partnering with University of Alabama on a, a fellowship program. They have a distant learning program for their information i think it's their library information school um and we are helping them with the curriculum in terms of uh training them on digitizing and setting up machines um and then so i guess we were trying to also pair the distant student with a public station close to where they live so that they had materials that they could sort of practice on and utilize and then that material would come to the american archives um, but, you know, 
uh, most public stations are pretty used to getting volunteers. Um, it's just a matter of focusing those volunteers on the archives. Yeah, I think it. I think it can be daunting, <laughs> a daunting task sometimes figuring out the archival piece of it. Um, so it, it's awesome that you're providing this extra help. You know, the first thing, it's funny because it is daunting. You know, you they open a closet and then they close it immediately, right? Because it's like, oh, my right. God, what are we going to do with that? <laughs> All that stuff. We have no idea. But really, the first thing to do is for them to just take inventory. You know, just start writing down somewhere in a database, in a spreadsheet, on a piece of paper, in a Word doc, whatever, what you have. Just don't even bother looking at the tape. Just write down what's on the label. So that you have some information, you know, like this is a quarter inch audio tape. This is what it says on the spine. I have no idea if that's what it is, but that's what it says on the spine. Or this is a DAT tape. Um, you know, this is a cassette tape. Just you know, figuring out how many of a given format they have so that, I mean, that's the first step to budgeting what it would cost to actually get it digitized. So that's like first step. Clean out your closet. Well, I mean, that sounds like a really unique way, I think. Uh, to give volunteers something important and a concrete, concrete work for them to do. Karen Cariani, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Great. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Well, my thanks again to Paul Reese Mandel for producing today's episode, uh, getting getting uh, Karen Cariani on the line with us to talk about this archive. Um, I just want to dig into all this material. I just want to go go for a swim in in some old videotape and and pull out new new ideas to share with audiences it's it's such a fun it's such a fun life to live to get to, it is. to dig the archives yeah no and and we talk a lot about radio on radio survivor but television is is definitely one of my first loves too and there's so much cool stuff in there. And, you know, I keep thinking about the things that I would search for. And, you know, one of which might be American Family, which was a PBS produced documentary series about an American family and their trials and tribulations. Sure. And and I see it as a predecessor for the real world, which was an MTV show that was kind of a mashup of soap opera and documentary conventions yeah and really and, the 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 like the amoeba that was about to grow into our world of reality television like you know the mtv's real world was was one of the first uh to walk the earth and and its predecessor is this pbs documentary which i think has a really there are some really good online articles i've because i've read about that show i've never seen it but i've read all about it um it was like a upper middle class American family that that opened their homes to the documentary film crew in the seventies, right? Yeah, I think so. In, in much in the same way that the Kardashians would do for for a massive amount of profit in in the next century, this was really one of the first times that that uh, that a family uh, allowed a camera crew into their homes and to capture all of the drama. And it's it's so funny because yeah. like once the cameras are there, is it reality? Well, and people, yeah, it's a mix of things because people forget about it. It's still a performance. It's that's a performance. A different story. It's a mixture of people forgetting the cameras there, but also knowing and they know they and always they reveal know. it's revealing things about themselves. And, <laughs> it's a whole other story. 
Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that would be super fun. I mean, I went down a real rabbit hole in today's episode about what's happening, Mr. Silver, which I might have mashed that name up into a different name. But like the first time I, uh, I, I have seen a little bit of that on YouTube. There's a, there's a um, very, very, very young Howard Zinn on this television program giving what um, I've read is one of the very first televised uh, anti-war editorials about the Vietnam War. Um, wow. And that's that's a part of the, the What's Happening Mr. Silver uh, legacy. And that's those are just two things out of what, what did we learn? How many thousands of hours? I mean, it's not even worth naming. More uh, than we could ever listen to or watch. What, you know, what else is interesting to me is that, you know, it, ostensibly it's an archive of public media, public radio and public television. But but there are some things like on the fringes of that. So there there are bits and pieces of community media and college radio. So I'm I'm also interested in diving into those fringes and finding out about what's in the collection that maybe is not as easy to categorize as public radio. Yeah. Fun day. Well, friends, a radio survivor, uh, if you have any uh, fantasy fantasy drafts of, of, of media that you'd like to dig out of either these archives or any archives, you can share your dream with us. Podcast at Radio Survivor is our email address. You can find us on social media as well. We're on those websites these days. Uh, Radio Survivor is a listener-supported uh, podcast and website. You can find out more about how to support the work at radiosurvivor.com slash support. We're also a podcast and a radio show. So uh, as a radio show, maybe you're hearing us now on the airwaves. We we air on a couple dozen stations around the country, ones that we're very proud of. Jennifer, what's the most exciting new one I can't even bring to mind? Oh, there's so many exciting new ones. Uh, you know, one of which is we're on the air in Washington State, we're on Valley 104.9 FM, and that is in Carnation and Duval, Washington. Wow. Say hello to us, uh, the people of Valley 104.9 FM. It's so nice to have you. Um, yeah, and we're also... And a, oh, go ahead. Oh, and on a personal note, we're also in San Francisco over San Francisco Public Press's new low-power FM station, Yes, that KSFPLP. is KSFPLP. KSFPLP. That's an exciting... Milestone for you, Jennifer, because you live in San Francisco. When Radio Survivor uh, launched off the internet airwaves and onto the terrestrial airwaves, the first affiliate station we had in our in our roster was for us, for me and Paul Reismandel, um, uh, our Portland local uh, community radio station. One of the many beautiful Portland local community radio stations airs us. So that was that's how we started this journey. So it's. I'm glad that we could catch catch a local station for you in in our in our net of community radio stations that that care about the love of radio and sound. It's a it's an exciting uh, little window into into the world of of non-commercial radio stations, the stations that uh, that choose to to put us on the air. And if you know about a station in the United States of America or elsewhere that could uh, that would benefit, that would enjoy um, the coverage of of non-commercial community media that we provide, you can go ahead and uh, send them our way, radiosurvivor.com. Oh, and I was going to say that we're a podcast. You can listen to this podcast anywhere where you get your podcasts. You can subscribe always for free. The word subscribe means uh, clicking a button for free and having it delivered to your 
podcast listener, uh, go ahead and and give us a subscription, and so you can always catch the next episode uh, for free in your in your podcast inbox. That's not how podcasts work. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for your help today with today's episode. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, on behalf of Paul Riesmandel, who produced this episode today, my name is Eric Klein. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.